I turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 11. We have been going through uh, the book of Nehemiah. We've just, we finished up the book of Ezra, and then we went straight into the book of Nehemiah. And one of the reasons that we did that is because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible, they were originally written together. They were intended to be uh, understood together. They were written at the same time. Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries of each other. But then we also, in addition to reading Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to also, beginning next week, we're going to jump into the book of Esther. Now, why is that? Well, those three books in particular are historical books that focus on the post-exilic period. What in the world does that mean? It just means that they're focused on the time period after the exile to Babylon. And it's focused in, Ezra and Nehemiah are focused in on a group of people that are often referred to as the remnant. The remnant are the Jewish people that were once in Babylonian captivity and now they're heading back to Jerusalem. There's another group called the Diaspora. Now we're going to unpack that more so next week as we begin uh, to look through the book of Esther. But Esther focuses on the group known as the Diaspora and that's the group of the Hebrew people that did not return back to Israel, back to the Jerusalem area. So. The idea is, after 70 years in exile, 70 years in captivity, there was this idea of, is God going to see us through? And there were a number of people that we've seen in Scripture that lived through the exile. For example, Daniel. Daniel was one of those that were part of the Babylonian captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, part of that Babylonian captivity. And they had some encouragement. The encouragement came from a prophet named Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote a book. It's in the Bible. He's one of the prophets. And chapter 29 is actually a letter that he wrote to the Babylonian captivities, uh, to those captives that were there in Babylon. And in that letter, most of us or many of us have even memorized Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's the idea. These people have been waiting for that moment of hope. They've been waiting for the hope after that 70 years of a storm that, was, um, that had enslaved them. So how do, they, how do they have hope after the storm? Once they're back in Jerusalem, once they're back to their homeland, how can they have hope? Well, throughout the book of Nehemiah, uh, we have seen several things. And I want you to consider Nehemiah's perspective. Nehemiah worked for the king of Persia. And Persia was the most prominent and leading empire in the entire world. The architecture was stunning. The economy was booming. I mean, it was the place to be. By comparison, once they got back to Jerusalem, much, much of it was just in rubble. I mean, it, was, it wasn't much to look at at all. And then even once they got everything rebuilt, I'm sure it would have been an unimpressive sight, both in comparison to what it once was under King Solomon, and then even in comparison to what the king of Persia had. Even the walls had been made from the recycled stone 
that was once a defeated city. So I can only imagine how Nehemiah uh, and others must have felt. But real quick, let me give you a real fast recap of where we've been as we, as we wrap up with Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 6 all focused on rebuilding that wall. Uh, they dealt with a lot of uh, insults and uh, from other leaders. I mean, if you remember, Tobiah was the one that was like, look, if you're going to rebuild that wall and you build it like that, with that recycled stone, even if a fox gets up on that wall, it's going to fall down. And then in chapter 7, they reestablished their identity as a people. Chapter 8, they re-celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 9, they repented and confessed their sin. By chapter 10, they had renewed their commitment to a covenant with God. Now, we're going to look at that covenant in a moment uh, that they made in chapter 10 and the three parts to it, and then the significance as we look at chapters 11, 12, and 13. But when the remnant returned to Israel, keep in mind that most of them did not live in the city of Jerusalem. They were excited to get back to their homeland. They were excited to get back to the nation of Israel. Now keep in mind, years earlier, before the Babylonian captivity, there was the Assyrian captivity. Now that was the northern kingdom. Below in the southern kingdom, those were the ones that were mostly taken into Babylonian captivity. So many of them were excited to get back, and most of them lived in the southern part of the kingdom. They came from the tribes of, of Judah or Benjamin. But they were excited to get back to their hometowns, not necessarily the city of Jerusalem. But not to mention that living in the city would have been a little bit more dangerous. I mean, an invading nation that comes along, if they're going to attack they're not going to attack a small town that's in uh, Judah that's out in the middle of nowhere where it's scattered out and there's no city wall. They're going to attack where the majority of the people are. They're going to attack the city. They're going to attack it because of its walls. So an invading nation would most likely attack that area. But let's look at these final chapters of Nehemiah and see what it sets the stage for. We're at Nehemiah chapter 11. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in, their own, in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, let me give you key point number one, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. Key point number one is this. Your physical presence is a ministry that strengthens the church. I want us to think about that for a moment, uh, because uh, as, as a church plant, uh, this really resonates. And a church planter, this resonates with me for sure. So what exactly is going on? we back up to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, here's what it says. Now the city was large, talking about Jerusalem, and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Do you hear what's going on? 
here they, they, they made their way back, and everybody went to their towns, everybody went to their cities, and then they were all excited about rebuilding Jerusalem, and they be, rebuilt the temple, and they rebuilt the walls, and they did all of this work, and then everybody was like, all right, I'm heading back down to my hometown. And Nehemiah is looking around, and he's going, we built all of this. And we have all of this ready. We have this massive facility. I look around. There's nobody here. What's the problem? What's going on? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever been to a sporting event? And you thought to yourself, have you ever asked that, had this thought? I wish the people in our churches would be this excited about worship. You ever done that? You ever gone to like a, you know, a sporting event and gone, man, everybody here is just so excited about this sporting event. If they could just get half of this energy, uh, uh, man, how much better uh, would, would our worship be? Why can't we see uh, all the people that pack in, in a stadium? Why can't our churches be like that? Well, here's the problem. It's like comparing Persia to Jerusalem. It's like comparing Persia to Jerusalem. Here's what I want you to notice. Persia had a large population, and it had all the luxuries. It has all the amenities. Jerusalem barely had people in it. However, it has always been God's plan to start with a seemingly small, insignificant number of people to accomplish his work. You have no idea, as a church planter, how refreshing that is. How refreshing it is to be reading through this. Because here's what I'm tempted to do. I am so tempted to look around at the Persians. I'm tempted to look at all the other churches. I'm tempted to look at everything else and all the amenities and the luxuries. And then God says, oh, hold on a second. Listen, you're not supposed to compare yourself to others. You are an insignificant number of people for a reason so that the glory of God would be shown. That's why. And if ever God spoke to me as a church planter through his word, it was through the, this particular passage. I need to stop comparing to Persia. I need to recognize that we are in a Jerusalem. But I also recognize this, just like Nehemiah, just like Nehemiah looked around and said, we still need people. <laughs> we still need people. So here's what they did. This is literally what they did. Nehemiah was like, okay, we need some of you to just move to Jerusalem. And you know what they did? They cast lots is what they did. They drew straws. They were like, okay, we'll, we'll figure it out. And they, they cast lots to figure out who was going to come. And one in ten decided, hey, we're going to come. I began to think about this, that this, this past week. Here's what's really cool. Tomorrow, tomorrow at lunchtime, I have an opportunity. I was invited to speak at our, our association um, of churches, a network of churches um, up in, in the Statesville, Trauman area. And 
they asked me to speak on church planters and what we need. And I'm going to be speaking to lots of other pastors and, and other churches in the association. I'm going to read this same passage that I just shared with you, where Nehemiah told all the other cities, here's what we need. We need some of you to leave your city and come join us, just so that we can have the presence, your presence can be a ministry, so that when others show up, they see your presence, and that makes a difference. So I don't know if I'm going to ask them to tithe like they did here. They actually tithe their population. You see that? One in ten of every city was sent to Jerusalem. I I hope and I pray that, that maybe there might be a couple of churches that would say, you know what, we could send one or two families. We could send one or two families to help out with greeting. One or two families that could just help out even just sitting in the room. You know why? Because your presence, your physical presence is a ministry and an encouragement to others. But here's what we're up against. Last month, Gallup, if you're familiar with the Gallup polls, Gallup released their annual United States church membership observations. They've been doing this since 1937. In fact, from 1937 all the way through the year 2000, the church membership numbers didn't really change a whole lot. They stayed right around 70%. Sometimes it was a little bit higher, 74, 75, but for the most part it was right around 70. Every now and then the lowest it dropped was about 68. But think about that. From 1937 until the year 2000, 70 plus percent of our population, about three out of every four people, would have attended church. And that was consistent throughout the entire uh, decades, throughout the entire century. But since the turn of the 21st century, the trend has continued to decline. This year's research that was just revealed just the week after Easter of this year, so barely a month ago, this year's research revealed for the first time that below 50%, 47% of Americans said that they belong to a church, hear this though, belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. The headline read this, United States church membership falls below majority for the first time. But let me make a couple of observations about their qualifier. First of all, belonging to a church is not the same as attending, right? I mean, belonging to a church is not the same as attending. Now, I don't mean to diminish the importance of belonging to a church. However, I know a lot of people who belong to a church where their name is on a roll, and if you ask them where you go to church, well, I belong to fill in the blank such and such church. They belong to that church, but it's largely in name only. Then, and they may not have attended there in a very long time. So when it says 47% of Americans said that they belong to a church, then in reality what that's telling me is that much lower than that are actually attending. Let me make another observation. Church, synagogues, and mosques 
are not the same thing. So if the statement was 47% of Americans said that they belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, then we can do what? We can recognize that a certain percentage of those belong to synagogues and a certain percentage belong to mosques. And those that actually belong to a church is even much lower than 47%. That's what we're up against. So let's, let's break that down by generation. Same poll, Gallup poll. 63% of boomers now attend church. 50% of Gen Xers attend church. 36% of millennials. 63 boomers, 63% boomers, 50% Gen Xers, 36% of millennials. So what about Lake Norman? Do those numbers reflect our community? No, in fact, it's worse. Research shows us that only 33% of Lake Norman residents identify with any of the local churches. 33%. So what is God doing in the world today? He's doing what he's always done. And more specifically, he is starting a kingdom work through churches like us. And God has always taken a small number of people to do something much larger so that the focus is on him. And when you're tempted to compare Grace Point to the riches of Persia, let me remind you that it was a seemingly small number of people that rebuilt Jerusalem. So here's our application. We need you here. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't enough to have a city and walls with nobody who lived there. So they drew straws. They determined who was going to live in the city and their physical presence was needed. So I would challenge you to observe what I call the ox in the ditch principle. Jesus asked the Pharisees, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. So the idea is this, that there are some situations that require our attention to resolve, and that's going to keep us from attending church. I get that. This is not a, this is not a guilt message. This is, listen, I get it. You, you've got to work. You've got to put food on the table. You've got to, you've got to do those things, and that's an ox in the ditch, Right? I get it. You're sick. You're not feeling well. You want to protect yourself. Get better. Care for your health. I get it. That's an ox in the ditch. I would say this, though. Missing church because it's baseball season, that's not an ox in the ditch, right? Failure to attend the sporting event would not be catastrophic or gross negligence to honor the Lord. However, it is honoring to the Lord when we have to do something that where we're working in such a way that it puts food on the table, and that brings glory and honor to the Lord. The Bible actually says if you don't do that, you're worse than a non-believer. So furthermore, how often do you think the ox would actually fall into a ditch? It really should be the exception, not the rule, right? So in a world where church attendance is at an all-time low, your physical presence is needed. Your physical presence is a ministry that strengthens the church.